Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Alice M. Rivlin worked as a national economic and social policymaker for nearly 60 years in the administrations of Presidents Lyndon Johnson, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. She was the founding director of the Congressional Budget Office and was director of the Office of Management and Budget, the first woman to serve in either of those roles, and a vice chair of the Federal Reserve. She was working on a book for the Brookings Institution Press titled Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters, before she died in May 2019. The book was completed by her son, Alan Rivlin, and her daughter-in-law, Sherry Rivlin, and I'm pleased that it brings Alan Rivlin to our show now. Welcome. Hello, Leonard. I'm very pleased to be here. And I'm pleased to have you. You and your wife completed the book from your mother's outlines, notes, and hospital bed directions. How much of the book had she already completed? Um, We're saying that it was something like 75% complete in terms of its writing, uh, far less than that in terms of rewriting and footnotes and research. Uh, so uh, almost all the footnotes are us. And, of course, things happened after she died. Very uh, Donald Trump was the president uh, at the time. Her manuscript's first lines were, quote, the American experiment is in danger of failing. The greatest threat to our democracy does not come from any foreign power. It comes from our democracy itself. She was worried that those lines would sound overly alarmist, but as we were picking up the book from her, uh, clearly they, the, 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 the bad news for America made the book seem somewhat more relevant. Uh, and as, uh, as all of this history unfolded, we were frustrated that we couldn't get her words, words out to the American public uh, in that period, but I think that they still... Uh, have an awful lot for for all of us to think about. Uh, Basically, it's a plea for people to find common ground uh, and unite to uh, make democracy work better so democracy is worth saving. You're saying she became alarmed by the state of American politics and policy, despite the fact that she was famous for her optimism. Uh, Did she feel beaten down by the issues uh, at the time, partisan warfare, gridlock, shifting majorities? Yes. I mean, I think uh, she had a long career, starting with the Congressional Budget Office and being uh, Bill Clinton's budget director. But I think the period that really set this book in motion was uh, during the Obama uh, administration, where she served on two bipartisan commissions to try to solve the deficit. Uh, and debt problem, um, the Simpson Bowles and Domenici Rivlin, and both of them were able to find ways to get the deficit and debt under control without crushing the economy, without uh, cutting uh, benefits for people who uh, who would be uh, hard pressed if they didn't have them, and without raising tax rates on individuals. The, the experts were able to solve the problem, but our broken politics at the time uh, meant that, that we, we were not able to enact a grand bargain to address the long-term deficit. Uh, and things kept getting uh, worse from there. She did see into the 
uh, Trump administration and bipartisan uh, efforts to try to solve the immigration crisis. The rug was pulled out from under there. Uh, a lot of our, our big issues, climate change, immigration, the deficit and debt, and the need to invest in economic productivity just weren't getting addressed because stalemate, gridlock. Uh, and she felt that uh, this was contributing to what caused people to distrust government and, uh, and, and want to have a revolution or shake things up or see the whole system as uh, corrupted beyond uh, the capacity to repair itself, uh, which, which uh, to a large degree has happened. But haven't there been a number of periods of, of uh, friction throughout our history? We had a civil war, and, and during my lifetime, uh, the Vietnam War leading to protests. How is this different? Or, or is it just a matter of we get past them, and she's hoping that we'll do the same thing with the current situation? I think more the second half of that question. The book goes through a lot of American history, going all the way back to the divisions uh, in the nation at the founding uh, during the Constitutional Convention, largely over whether there would be slave states or free states, and picks up that Federalist versus anti-Federalist theme all the way up to the Civil War, which was clearly a worse time than now. We just had a, a conversation on the show about the Constitution, which uh, does not include the word democracy, but does uh, and, and really is not structured to create a democracy. If, if we become more democratic, it's because of things that have happened since the, the Constitution was passed. I think that's largely true. I think that uh, one of the, the real inputs into the thinking of this book is the period of Reconstruction and uh, what Foner, uh, Eric Foner calls the second founding. And uh, it was in that period that three amendments to the Constitution were passed that if they'd been taken uh, at full value, uh, would have guaranteed equality and you know for all citizens, including former slaves. Um, and uh, so I think we moved forward in that period, but we have moved forward and back. Well, we uh, undermined those things over the years as well, haven't we? We absolutely have. And there have been divisions in our body politic that uh, continue. And largely, she didn't set out to write a book about race relations in America. But as we go through all of the history through this period, constantly the big schism in our country is between those who think that the federal government ought to have the power to say uh, that white supremacy ended with the Civil War and another faction within American politics that say states' rights uh, and wanted to protect segregation and, uh, and white superiority. And so we go, you talked about the 60s, we go through the period of um, 1964 and 1965 with the passage of the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act and talk about the bipartisanship that was necessary because of the Southern Democrats who were opposing that. So Lyndon Johnson had to uh, work with uh, uh, the Republicans to break the filibuster of the Southern Democrats. Uh, he said he'd lost the South for a generation. That group of Southern conservative Democrats either changed their party affiliation to become Republicans or were replaced by Southern conservative Republicans, making up the Reagan coalition. 
we continue to have that split, you know, as Gingrich came on and, and we go through all of this history. But to bring us uh, sort of more forward to the president, present, uh, when President Obama was elected, we reached sort of full on dysfunction. And uh, then uh, Trump came in and things got even worse. Well, a number of relevant events happened after she died. The Black Lives Matter protests, the COVID-19 pandemic, Donald Trump's refusal to concede the 2020 election results, uh, the steps that he took in order to remain in power, and the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol by um, loosely allied anti-democratic authoritarian paramilitary groups. Uh, the assault on the Capitol Police was termed legitimate political discourse by the Republican National Committee. So this is the period where Sherry and I had to take over uh, Alice's message and vision. And, and imagine what she might have thought about all of it. We put a forward and an afterward that do that. And, and we're very pleased with them because they, they stay quite current to where we are right now. And they, uh, they absolutely, well, let's, the biggest idea that we think uh, we, we come up with and working with Alice's ideas is she's talking about consensus and so many people are saying, but do you realize how crazy these Trump Republicans are? How can you have consensus with them? And what we realized is Alice was trying to protect democracy and the truth by finding uh, bipartisanship and common ground to defend democracy and defend the truth. But if you have people who don't believe in the truth, they deny the truth uh, that Donald Trump lost the 2020 election in order to undermine democracy and say that our, our elections are corrupt and that we don't we're not the greatest democracy in the world. Uh, you cannot compromise with that. So what she's talking about is defining a broad us. Us is all the people who uh, don't believe in, in authoritarianism, violence, thuggery, lies, propaganda, and racial superiority as political organizing principles. Well, that's a, a coalition of people in support of democracy and the peaceful transfer of power, truth, reason, evidence, and equality. And that is a coalition that goes from the most progressive Democrats through the moderates and independents and includes many Republicans uh, that, that reject the big lie. Well, that's pretty much the coalition that came out and defeated the expected red wave in the last election. That battle's not over, but the, that group has shown its strength. That big us uh, went to the polls and the election deniers did very poorly. Well, but we received a mixed message in the, the recent elections, didn't we? Oh, the first message is there are a whole lot of people that believe the big lie and uh, we're voting for candidates who uh, embrace all those uh, things that I think the vast majority of Americans reject. Look so how close this, the vote was between Warnock and, and Walker. Absolutely. Between Warnock and Walker. I mean, I think that you can go through the uh, the states where where there was an election denier and also an election denier. Uh, where there was an election denier and, and somebody who was more traditional Republican and find that a lot of Republicans split their tickets and rejected the election deniers. Uh, I mean, e even in Georgia, which you bring up, I love Stacey Abrams. I think Stacey Abrams is a 
power force within American politics and her she's continuing to write chapters. The difference wasn't Stacey Abrams versus Raphael Warnock. The difference was uh, uh, Herschel Walker and Kemp, who is not my he wouldn't be my candidate, but at least he stood up to Trump. And I think that uh, in that race, that difference shows uh, that the people who embraced Trump uh, did did much worse than the Republicans who stood up to Trump. But things are getting even more complicated. Uh, we just learned that Kristen Cinema is leaving the Democratic Party and registering as an independent. I, I think that that is, in some sense, a very important change. But in some sense, it really just tells us what we already knew. Uh, she's changing her party affiliation from, from Democrat to independent, caucusing with the Democrats, which means that she's in the same category as Bernie Sanders and Angus King. It means that the Democrats still have their narrow control of the chamber and will get to do their committee assignments. But what's really true is what was uh, what, what we figured out you know, over the last two years, and it has not changed with one more seat, and that is that d Democrats can only pass legislation by, by finding common ground with the moderates, and in most cases, finding common ground with the Republicans. That's the big message of the book. If you want to get something done, you've got to build a coalition that gets you over the vote threshold that you need, and that means reaching out and finding common ground with, uh, with, with people who you do not agree with on all things. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Alan Rivlin, the son of um, the late Alice M. Rivlin. He and his wife, Sherry Rivlin, um, have um, helped put together uh, Alice Rivlin's last book called Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. Isn't it fair to say that congressional stalemates on, on budgets, taxes, economic policy, health care, immigration, gun safety, climate change, an aging workforce, and, and many other issues are causing declining public confidence in the government's ability to deliver progress and prosperity for us all? I think that's absolutely true. The, the good news, the, the, the news is not all bad. Uh, bipartisanship happens much more than most people think. It's underreported because the press is much more interested in the conflict. And there are many problems that are not getting solved. So bipartisanship happens more than people think, but less than we need, because we need to find bipartisan solutions on all of those other problems that you talk about. But the last couple of years have actually been pretty good, as much as uh, our attention has been on the crazy. In the last election, we, we, we chose sane. We chose uh, uh, Joe Biden, who, who promised to, uh, to bring back uh, a, a more bipartisan approach. He went to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania and delivered a speech that said the, 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 the opposition is not our enemy. Uh, they, he, his view is they're our negotiating partner. And he said he would reach across the aisle. Now, a lot of progressives were very dubious about the idea of getting any deals done with Republicans, and they wanted a Democrats-only track for the most uh, progressive of legislation to address climate change and a lot of those other things. So we followed two tracks. You know, it turned out the bipartisan track was 
uh, more effective in actually passing legislation. Uh, Limited, and, you know. largely. And, uh, only a few things got passed. Many didn't get passed because of partisanship, no? Yes, exactly. So it, it is absolutely true. And I, 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 first of all, I know, I know where I am. This is WBAI. And this has been a, 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 a radio station that's been important to me my whole life. I've never lived in New York. But uh, when I was in high school, I volunteered as they were turning on the Pacifica station in Washington, WPFW Washington, Jazz and Justice, 89.3. And uh, so I understand that there are the the progressives have a, a great agenda of things that we need to do. And they're frustrated that they're not able to do all of them. And I share that frustration. And, and even Alice uh, shared that frustration to a large degree. Uh, there were a lot more things she wanted to do, but her philosophy was do the things that you can agree on and then continue to advocate for the things that you can't pass. So that was what happened last year. We, we, we had a big standoff between progressive Democrats and moderate Democrats. And eventually a deal was reached. They found common ground on a bill that was half the size and didn't do a lot of things that, that progressives wanted to do. But it did a lot of things that progressives wanted to do, uh, in, including clean energy and, and health care, expanding Obamacare subsidies, drug price caps, uh, taxes on a corporate 15 percent corporate minimum tax, IRS enforcement. And so it was a good bill. I think the frustration on my, Alice's part would have been do the parts that you can agree to right away and then fight over the other things. So uh, the, the Inflation Reduction Act was a great bill, a great compromise between uh, uh, the, the progressives and the moderates. But it could have happened a year earlier. That, that deal was available one year earlier. And then we could have passed even more. We might not have even lost the House if we'd. Uh, uh, gotten more quickly to the common ground. Do you think that uh, our politics uh, was damaged by the demonizing uh, the, the, that occurred in hopes of winning election victories recently, or have we gotten past that now? Oh, de- our flavor of politics has changed over decades to more and more demonization. And uh, Donald Trump brought that to a, a an art form, and it's part of a serious propaganda effort to label some, the other side, label the other side, and then dehumanize them. And Donald Trump does it with those, you know, cute little nicknames. And uh, both of our parties had been doing that more and more. The book details it goes through a lot of the political science to detail how the rise of negative partisanship. That is to say, campaign attack ads associating every Democrat with Nancy Pelosi, associating every Republican with Donald Trump, running on a very limited agenda of what what people want to do and mostly saying if the other side wins, it's going to be terrible and they're going to end Social Security and Medicare and we're, you know, we're, we're going to let the horde. That style of campaigning has continued. It's not just campaigning, it's, it's legislating. It, I, 
we now have a permanent campaign that changes the way we try to pass legislation that is all about figuring out who to blame and blaming them rather than finding out what we can agree on, finding those agreements and moving forward. So, yes, I think that the demonizing was a was a problem, but it's not the last election or, or what happened this this fall. It's it's a continuous problem that our politics is is more about subtraction than addition right now. In the book, your mother makes the case that on many practical economic issues, the public is far less divided than partisan politicians and the media would have us believe. but didn't your mother have firsthand exposure over decades in Washington to some of the, the worst behavior that humans can exhibit? Absolutely. She, she tells a lot of stories in the book. Uh, there were many times where suddenly she was in the spotlight and uh, being demonized. The, the biggest one was during the Clinton administration, and she details the whole thing from her side of it, but she, she seems to have some perspective. Uh, but there was something called the Rivlin memo that suggested that the Democrats were uh, going to uh, cut Social Security and uh, they weren't and it wasn't and it's all explained in the book. But for a couple of months there, uh, every time she turned around, there was a camera and uh, and this happens all the time. That is the way our politics has evolved. She's also spent some time in the book really apologizing for some of the mistakes she made and uh and many of them really go to uh the 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 feeling that uh, i i understand that the uh wbai audience is going to include a lot of people who've been skeptical about alice rivlin for her whole career uh she was considered you know she's she's a clinton democrat she's a uh some people would say a corporate democrat and she represents the view that uh government has to live within her her means so when when paul krugman talks about uh the very serious people uh she's one of the people that that he has in mind uh that uh her critics call uh uh those who would fight the deficit through austerity and uh i don't think that's accurate but but alice makes an apology to uh progressives in the book that was very important to her at the time of her death she quotes president clinton's belief that quote there's nothing wrong with america that cannot be cured by what's right with america uh, and she says, we must change the tone of our discourse away from rage and blame toward greater listening, understanding, compassion, and problem solving. Well, at this moment, that sounds easier said than done. Well, she starts by engaging in a little bit of it herself. At the, at, at right after the 2016 election, she did some real self-reflection and tried to understand. She 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 gave a speech to the, the Brookings board where she said, we're doing too much talking and too little listening. We need to understand why there is a Bernie Sanders movement and why there is a Donald Trump movement. And what is it that causes the the establishment to have lost so much trust? And she ends up with three things. One the establishment missed the economic downturn of 2008-2009. And part of the reason they may have missed that downturn is because there is too much 
uh, corporate influence in among the economic elite in Washington. She really says the result revolving door between the largest banks and financial institutions and the, the you know, the Treasury secretary and the, the other positions of uh, responsibility for the economy caused blind spots. Uh, that that she says was one of the three big mistakes uh, the economic establishment made. But the third one I think is most important and affected her view of politics the most, and that is not understanding the rising inequality that that starts with the deindustrialization and with the rise of of the knowledge economy. Uh, it makes it po possible for some people to leap ahead uh, and gain vast riches uh, while others are falling behind. And so she really, and, and that inequality got worse as we tried to get the nation out of the financial crisis of 2008. And it got worse in the pandemic. And I think that her uh, awareness that that has become the largest economic challenge for this country caused her to find more common ground uh, with progressives uh, and embrace policies to uh, invest in uh, in broadband and uh, infrastructure and, and job training and, and all the things that could create more opportunity for all of the people and the places falling behind. Well, the deindustrialization crisis caused in large part by the fact that other countries of the world, like China, have uh, been building up their industry. So we live in, in uh, a complex world. Uh, are we blaming each other instead of the, just the, 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 the situation we're living in? Um, well, Alice would say, don't worry about who's to blame. Worry about what you're going to do about it. And it is true that we're in a period where we're reassessing, reassessing the globalization that took place, that created the deindustrialization. Um, the real question is, what do we do now? And she was a believer that whatever the economic circumstances, uh, the time was right to invest in future economic growth and productivity and involving more people in the economy. So her chapter two of the book is a plan designed to address the two types of inequality in America, which we call horizontal and vertical inequality. Vertical is what uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren focus our attention on. People living in the same community, some in penthouses, some uh, homeless on the streets. Uh, and in addition to that, and that's very real, she, she draws attention to the horizontal inequality, which is uh, the pockets of poverty within our big cities, but also uh, areas of the country that were growing uh, far slower than, than, than the surging cities on the coasts in the middle of the country. Uh, there's been economic decline. And there are real policies we can do to try to address both horizontal and vertical inequality so that Americans don't believe the system's rigged against them. Well, yesterday we discussed... Uh, the, the fact that the system is still largely rigged against people of color, uh, despite the fact that we like to believe that we're improving on, in that area. I, uh, the book goes through a, a lot of the, the, the case there and agrees uh, that uh, racial inequality uh, is a huge uh, and persistent problem. 
And gender inequality is a huge uh, mm. problem that uh, uh, Alice faced in her own career. Um, and and that a national focus on addressing the inequalities in our economy would be something that, again, a larger us, uh, if politics is about us versus them, she she's trying to find a larger us in uh, in every place to, to address. And a larger us would be willing to say the economy is vastly unequal. Many people are on the wrong side of different uh, divisions and that there are real things we can do to help bring uh, economic uh, uh, economic uh, opportunity uh, to parts of the country and part and groups within the country and individuals within the country that have not had that opportunity in the past. Well, this is not just a national issue. This is also a state and city and neighborhood issue, isn't it? Absolutely. These, are, and these problems is, are even more evident in state capitals, city governments, and communities around the country. And she thought that the solution to this should be pushed outward from Washington to state and local government because uh, the, the agenda setting for how we do regional economic development is something we know how to do. And she wanted to make regional economic development the 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 uh, heart of a plan to move the nation forward. We we, we uh, have traveled to place to to parts of the country where uh, mayors and county executives are getting together to address the problems of the region, putting politics aside in the D versus R sense, but also putting uh, uh, capital and labor in the same room, putting religious leaders and uh, law enforcement and local hospitals and uh, colleges and universities to figure out what are we good at here in this part of central Ohio or what can we do in in eastern Kentucky to uh, to attract some industry uh, that's, that plays to our relative strength. Those are decisions that should be made at the state and local level. To some degree, that's what the Biden administration is doing with the bipartisan infrastructure bill and finding ways to, to get local uh, uh, and regional authorities to compete for those dollars and to, to, to find where those resources go. We could be going further in that direction, but you're absolutely right. This is a a local challenge and local government should be in the driver's seat of, of how we address it. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Enjoying my conversation with Alan Rivlin. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. Just call 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's 
212-209-2950 or give and then the number 2 WBAI.org. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And return to Alan Rivlin, who is the CEO of Zen Political Research. And from 1993 to 1997, he served in the first Clinton administration as a senior advisor to Secretary of Health and Human Services Donna Shalala. Uh, He has worked on uh, a book written by his mother before she died with his wife, Sherry Rivlin, president of Zen Political Research. Uh, His mother, Alice M. Rivlin, was a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institute for nearly six decades, also taught public policy at Georgetown, Harvard, and other universities, and wrote uh, a number of books, along with serving um, in three major uh, administrations over the course of her career. Um, Now... You, uh, l- let's get back to uh, the positives and the negatives here. Um, uh, is it uh, she, she? She makes the case that on many political issues, the public is less divided than partisan politicians and the media would have us believe. Why is reaching consensus on major issues often so difficult? Um, we get into stuck positions. Uh, and we don't just get into stuck positions for no reason. There is, uh, I can answer that in several ways, but um, there's a, a political scientist named Seth Maskett who explains how our parties have been replaced by these decentralized party structures that include the cable television news outlets for message development, lots of independent ways to fundraise uh, for for different uh, uh, factions within our parties. And we now have a very strong uh, part of our political system that is interest groups that raise money on an issue and they do it by setting an absolutist position. Uh, It started in the abortion uh, versus choice Mm -hmm. fight. Uh, Positions taken that say, absolutely not. The NRA says not one piece of legislation on firearms. Uh, I would say their opposition, the the, uh, gun safety uh, takes the opposite approach. It says, we'll agree to whatever you can and it makes some progress without ever getting uh, the, the the goal uh, uh, of banning firearms passed. But on issue after issue, we have uh, interest groups that take absolutist positions. The biggest one, the best example, was the uh, no new taxes, Americans mm-hmm. for uh, Tax Freedom, uh, that said, you know, read my lips, no new taxes. Well, that's an unsustainable position, but it leads you to a stuck place. It's what led Republicans to be unable to accept any kind of compromises to raise revenue and control spending to address the deficit. And so it's the book says very clearly, bipartisanship is not something that moderates need to do more of. Bipartisanship is something that partisans do. They 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 don't put aside their strongly held convictions, but they look for common ground to say, where can we find some agreement to move forward and, and do something half a loaf rather than all of the loaf? Uh, so it's it's not 
partisanship that is the problem. It's uncompromising partisanship. When you get into that stuck place, we put a $1.6 trillion Build Back Better bill on the table, and now you're asking us to just take half of it. Well, tell us which half you want to cut. And the answer is, Manchin was able to say, this is the half I want to cut. And uh, that's when we should have reached the deal. Agree on what you can agree on. It was a pretty good bill. A year later, it became the Inflation Reduction Act. So it's that kind of uh, that kind of flexibility, finding the common ground, agreeing on the things you can agree on, continuing to disagree on the things you disagree on, that that could get us get more problems solved uh, and and more quickly with less acrimony and, and more uh, uh, discourse. Ronald Reagan and House Speaker Tip O'Neill reached an agreement to extend the life of Social Security. There were agreements between uh, Barack Obama and uh, Mitch McConnell in the lame duck session after the 2010 elections, despite the arrival of the Tea Party wing in the Republican Party. But the book relates the decline in bipartisan cooperation from the Reagan administration through the Obama years. Was Trump just a logical extension of that? Yes. I, I mean, I think that that is absolutely what the book argues. Um, certainly not. I mean, Donald Trump is a one of a kind and uh, he's not the logical extension of anything. But the opportunity for Trump to run against the entire Republican Party establishment, uh, in other words, the, the, that all of that division delivered so little. Uh, of the Republican agenda, it just delivered an attitude. Well, he took the attitude, but he dropped the, the political agenda and said, you guys have done nothing. And he plowed through, you know, 16 other Republican candidates that represented all of the, the factions and positions within the Republican Party. And then turned his attention on uh, Hillary Clinton, who was probably the most accomplished, uh, best resume uh, most effective uh, uh, candidate that we'd had for president in, in at least a very long time. Um, but uh, he found that there were pockets of people that he could add to the Republican base. And uh, we go through this in detail, but... Uh, well, you can and, give and us I've some detail. Listened. You can give us a little detail here. I didn't hear that. Sorry. I said you can give us a little detail. Yes. <laughs> um, there, there, uh, the... Um, uh, the research tells us that what has been increasing through this entire period is negative partisan affect. People are agreeing not on what they're for, but they're agreeing on what they are against. And Republicans have built up this ability to say anything that Nancy Pelosi's for, I'm against. And Democrats have built up the ability to say anything that, that Donald Trump is for, I'm against. And he added to the coalition who are going to vote against Democrats a new coalition. And this is the research of Liliana Mason, a political scientist, who asked a survey uh, of people, how do they feel about the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and Muslims, uh, gays and lesbians, uh, African-Americans, Hispanics. Uh, and what she found by repeating that survey after Trump came on the scene, the first survey was, be was in, before Donald Trump arrived on the scene. She found those same people and found out you could predict Trump's majority by taking the people who had a negative view of, of Democrats and adding the people who had a negative view of Muslims and Hispanics 
and gays and lesbians. So and, he created, and then you can add now anti, a resurgence of anti-Semitism. Absolutely. And what we find is, and this is, uh, continues in Liliana Mason's research, that when people who hate can be in, in, a, in an alliance with other people they hate, that there are African Americans who don't like gays, and they heard the message in uh, uh, in 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 Trump's rhetoric, and there there were uh, gays who don't like African Americans who heard the rhetoric. That that he took all the people who said, "Why isn't anybody complaining about some group as much as as I do?" and he combined them, and that added to uh, his majority, and. Uh, the the hope is he can't repeat this exercise that 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 we're on to him that we now see how uh, 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 that the public sees the negativity and voted against that in the last election and and if we keep working hard we can get that supermajority who says we don't want authoritarianism and thuggery and hate uh, to drive our politics. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Alan Rivlin, who, with his wife, Sherry Rivlin, have edited and added to a book that his late mother, Alice M. Rivlin, wrote called Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. It is published by um, Brookings Institution, Press. Uh, now, uh, I'm, I'm getting the feeling that what we're really seeing is just a continuation of all of the old problems this country has faced over the years, although they pop up under new names. Is, is that reasonable? I do think that's a, a generally fair statement, although I think that uh, the, the appeal to violence, the denial of the truth, uh, that, that that's a it's not new. And uh, the, the absolutely wonderful uh, Rachel Maddow uh, Ultra uh, podcast series uh, lets us know how how not new this is. And uh, and the book goes through some of these periods where uh, we had violence as as a form of political uh, a common form of political speech, certainly in the Jim Crow South. Um, but. Uh, largely speaking, that was a departure from where things were before Trump came on the scene. Uh, but but most of the themes in the book run from for very long time periods and keep coming back in different ways. You say Alice viewed American political history as an interplay between great strengths, uh, a strong constitution, a bill of rights, our commitment to democracy, effective federal, state, and local governments, and a trusted court system, and great challenges, divisions by politics, class, race, gender, and geography that have been expressed through violence, discrimination, and forced inequality. And if that's the case... I don't. Uh, I don't see how the, this can be resolved because you do have it. Your final chapter tries to address that. We'll get to that in a moment. But uh, those those things seem to me to be. Uh, I don't know. Rigidly built into our, the the, the uh, ethos of this country. Oh, I mean, I, I think that the um, the the fight for justice against those who are fighting for advantage 
it is a fight that has been going on uh, throughout uh, our uh, our history and likely will continue. Uh, of course, there have been, you know, I mean, you just have to go to the Martin Luther King quote that uh, the arc bends towards justice. And uh, so I think we are making progress. We, we have retrograde. Um, but uh, uh, it, I think that Nobody would say that the fight is over and that we can uh, get these things out of our society, but we can make progress. Well, we can pull down statues and erect new statues, but we can't change what's in people's hearts. I think sometimes you can change what's in people's hearts, and that is what the the last uh, chapter of the book is about. Um, the, that, the, the chapter is headed, How We Can Change the Rules and Change the Tone of American Politics. Absolutely. And that's absolutely where Alice was at the very end of her life. She was really trying to say, OK, what's it going to take uh, to keep moving forward? Because as you said earlier, she was an optimist who was very alarmed, but she always believed uh, that 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 be less about uh, defining the problem and more about finding the solution. And the book concludes with a lot of solutions, some of which are embedded in our rules. And, and we go through it. it it's no, there's no silver bullet. There are like something like 24 different independent ideas uh, and suggestions made here. Some start with the congressional rules. She was an expert on the budget process and, and shares her, her thoughts on that. Uh, go to two-year budgeting so that we're not fighting about the budget every year. Get rid of the uh, debt ceiling uh, constraint altogether. It's a relic that has nothing to do uh, with the modern world, but it, it's a, it creates uh, an attractive nuisance, a dangerous weapon that can be picked up and used to threaten the American public. Um, then there's a lot of talks about changes in election uh, laws, election finance, uh, campaign finance laws, and, and things like that. And in each case, she lists the organizations that are already engaged in these fights. Uh, how do you uh, how do you step up and say, I want to move politics forward? Will you find the people who have already joined organizations that want to do that? And uh, uh, she talks about eliminating the filibuster. Uh, there's a very long chapter on that and how it plays out in our history. But uh, Joe Manchin is wrong about the filibuster. It is not part of the founder's design uh, and, and, and how we make the Senate a more deliberative body. Don't we often blame the founders for problems that we're facing today? In this case, we don't blame the founders necessarily because it was an accident. But there's a great story that uh, Sarah Binder uh, is, is an expert on. And, and uh, it was a friend of Alice's. She's at the Brookings Institution and other places. But she wrote a book about how we got the filibuster and explained that Aaron Burr, just after he shot Alexander Hamilton in that deadly duel, he was vice president, head of the Senate. He told the other senators, the rule book is too complicated. Simplify it. And they accidentally eliminated the clause called the call the previous question that cuts off debate. So they couldn't cut off debate because they got rid of that rule, even though nobody used the rule that way or knew that it, that's what it was for. They got rid of it. Mm -hmm. And then they found out that they couldn't cut off debate. And fast forward all the way to when America is considering entering World War One uh, and President Wilson says, 
a, a small group of willful men are holding up our nation's ability to act as a great nation. And that's when they invented the cloture rule and gave us essentially the system we have now. They changed the two-thirds requirement to a three-fifths requirement. But nobody figured out how to use the filibuster to make the Senate a uh, a, major a super majority rather than a majority uh, until uh, really Obama was in office. And that's when use of the filibuster became routine uh, by Mitch McConnell. Uh, we ought to get rid of it. It doesn't make the Senate more deliberative. It makes it less functional. So why do you think Joe Manchin insists on it? In this case, he's, he, he doesn't have the history right. And uh, I, I can understand. I think most people grew up thinking that the filibuster was part of the founder's design and not an accident. Uh, he, we, we'd like him to read the book uh, because it explains it. Or he can read Sarah Binder's book. She explains it, too. I was surprised to read that William Crystal, a conservative, has said, and I'm going to quote him here, we owe a great debt to Sherry Rivlin and Alan Rivlin for completing this manuscript left unfinished at Alice Rivlin's death. It is a fitting final contribution by a fine thinker and public servant who contributed so much of a, to our democracy. Alice worried that the American experiment is in danger of failing. Now, Crystal, as I said, it was a conservative, and listeners to this conversation will, I'm sure, understand that you are not. <laughs> that is certainly true, and I want to say uh, Jamie Raskin uh, also endorses uh, the book on the front cover. Uh, Bill Crystal joined us for uh, one of the launch events for the book, and and the main thing is that he's pro-democracy. I mean, he's, mm -hmm. he's sort of a leader in the never-Trumper uh, world, um, but uh, people who are very conservative and people who are very progressive in their views can be quite alarmed about the uh, uh, anti-democratic, anti-authoritarian uh, nature of the, the, the current turn towards election deniers. And uh, so uh, the book got a lot of bipartisan endorsements uh, from, from leading Democrats and Republicans. And you, uh, how to how did you put this book together? Uh, uh, how, how complete was it when you finally, when you began working on it? And how much did you have to extrapolate? We really were working kind of very long weeks, but it took us three years to get the book together. Hmm. And that's because Alice's vision was so ambitious. She wanted to include history and political science and economic analysis. And we had to get ourselves to the same point uh, as her in terms of her knowledge. And we had to check her recollections against the, the record. She had some things wrong that, you know, who said what, when. And so we had to go through detailed uh, reports of the Clinton years and the Obama years and through all the American history. Um, so there, there was a lot to be done to get to the place where we were completing Alice's vision and then updating it as the world was changing so dramatically. Just one other thing. You're the CEO of Zen Political Research, and your wife, Sherry, is the president of Zen Political Research. Why Zen? 
Well, we we do practice. We, we meditated just before this uh, uh, interview and this discussion. Uh, we uh, follow Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, the uh, uh, Vietnamese uh, Buddhist who, who passed away recently, um, and uh, and Tara Brock here in the Washington D.C. area is another uh, Buddhist uh, leading thinker. Um, we call it Zen political research because we're trying to seek common ground. Originally, the, uh, the, the, the formation of this effort was trying to find common ground between Hillary Clinton supporters and Barack Obama supporters. We've broadened that out to be a search for common ground between progressives and moderates. And then with this project, it becomes common ground for, for the big us that uh, it is for democracy and the truth and opposed to those who would deny the truth and undermine democracy. My great thanks to you for being on our show, Alan Rivlin, who, with his wife, Sherry Rivlin, uh, edited and updated the book that had been left by Alice Rivlin uh, at the time of her death, uh, a book that uh, has a very important message for America right now. The title is Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters, and it is published by Brookings Institution Press. What a pleasure it's been having you on our show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Leonard. It has been a real pleasure for us as well. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to our executive producer, Keziah Glow, and to our audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed one million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today... I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this station coming to you. Uh, we are have fallen behind on our rent and on the rent for our tower, uh, and we really do need a show of support uh, from our listeners. So we're asking anyone who has the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give and then the number 2, WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing Divided We Fall, Why Consensus Matters. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month, whatever you're comfortable with. And that allows us to plan for the future, and we'd be happy to send you a B, all WBAI buddies a WBAI tote bag. But either way, please call now, because we don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. Again, the number 212-209-2950 or online, go to give to WBAI.org. 
to play your part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York Radio Dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us on Monday when my guest, Chloe Sorvino, will discuss her new book, Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend.